Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everyone, and it's just really nice to see, I was going to say, it's really nice to see some faces in the room, but what I mean is eyes and hair. It's really nice to see eyes and hair in the room. Um, My name is Phil. I actually joined uh, the church um, on the first birthday when we sort of found the church, so it's it's kind of nice to to see the four-year journey that I've been on coming here, and it's always a privilege to to speak. Um, Let me begin by just saying um, this message this morning I've prepared has been quite a struggle to prepare. Um, not because it's not important or that I think it's going to be bad, but you can tell me that afterwards, but because of how important I think it is. We're talking about hope this week and next. And it's because of how humbled I really feel about talking about this topic in this time. Um, so please do pray for me as I speak. Um, pray that I have the clarity. I may look at my notes a little bit more than I sometimes do. Um, so yeah, please, please bear with me and hopefully listen to what I'm saying. I think I was reading this morning the message translation of Ephesians 3.8. Paul says, Here I am, preaching and writing about these things that are way over my head. The inexhaustible riches and generosity of Christ. And just so you know where I am this morning, that's how I feel. Um, this content is way over my head in how magnificent it is and how inexhaustible it is, and I hope you can take something from it. So let's start, if you want to open your Bibles. Um, I'll be referencing quite a lot of scripture this morning, uh, most of it in passing, but if you want to have your Bibles open, you want to start with me in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 15. And it says this, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer for anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have. My question for all of us this morning is, what is the reason for the hope that you have in our world right now? Throughout these last six months, I've been thinking a lot about hope. In March, when the pandemic first hit, I noticed around me and within me especially a sudden desperation and scavenging for hope. Within me and around me, there are people desperate for good news, for something to put their hope in, someone to tell them that things were going to get better. And through the pandemic, both myself and people around me and in our society, things that people have put their hopes in had either disappeared or become more fragile. Whether that's jobs, health, finances, family, community support, government, church, or scientific understanding, so many of these things that we trusted in and found hope in are either not there or maybe not quite as stable as we thought they were. It seems like our world and many of us ourselves are in need of hope more than any time in recent memory. I've been also really struck by the number of stories um, that are coming out about the rise in interest in church, the number of people tuning in online. And my question 
has been, what are they going to find when they look? Are they going to come and watch and find what they're looking for? Are they going to find a good reason for hope that they can't find outside of the church that they're searching for? Because in one sense, hope is actually everywhere. Um, And partly because it has no single definition. Um, Trust me, you can bury yourself in confusion if you try and find a good definition, a general definition for the word. Hope in the English language, as I've thought and worked out, can be a verb, a noun, an adjective, and an adverb. That means hope in our common language can mean something we have, something we do, something that describes someone or something, or something that describes a way of doing something. My question has been, am I hopeful inside, and therefore I find hope around me, or do I have hope within me, and therefore I find hope? That linguistic riddle has left me with a fundamental question of where does my hope begin as a Christian? Or as Peter wrote to the Christians in that opening scripture, what is the reason I have for hope as a follower of Jesus in this time in 2020? So the first thing I did back in March is I went to the Bible. Um, I wrote down and read through all 144 references to hope. Um, I've got a a spreadsheet if you want it. Um, But I was doing it because I didn't want the answers that news were telling me. I didn't want the answers the government was telling me. I didn't particularly want the answers even my own past Christian faith was telling me. I wanted a deeply grounded answer to the reason for my hope. Because that was the only thing that was going to get me through that time and what I was seeing around me. And maybe that resonates with you guys this morning. So knowing a little about what I was thinking through, um, and I did sort of volunteer it, um, so it's my fault, Steve and Viv have asked me to do two teachings this week and next week on the subject of Christian hope. Um, And I'm going to share with you where I have gotten to. And I use that phrase, honestly, on purpose, where I have gotten to. Um, Some of you know me, some of you don't, but I am not a hopeful person by nature. It's always concerning when your pastors laugh that much at that sentence. But it's, it's true. I do not look on the bright side of life. Um, <laughs> and the, the truth is, throughout this week, as I've been preparing this, I have been deeply challenged. Um, you know, honestly, to the point um, of tears at times, of the absence of much of what I'm going to share about my own Christian life. And therefore, what I'm offering you and inviting you to this week and next is absolutely nothing about what I can offer you, but just to point us to Jesus, the foundation of his word, in the belief that that is the best and only foundation right now for our hope. So let me begin this morning. What I'm going to spend the time talking about is the three realities that found Christian hope. The first one is going to be that hope is founded in the reality of sin. The second one is going to be that hope is founded in the reality of the world we rarely see. And the third one is going to be that hope is founded in the reality of the resurrection. So let's start. The hope is founded in reality of sin. Again, if you want to turn your Bibles, I'm going to read from Romans 8, verses 20 to 25. Romans is a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome, It's a ginormous um, 
letter, um, and I'm just going to read a section which sort of comes uh, midway through his argument and just talk about it for just a little bit. And he writes this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he or she sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And there's, there's loads in there. I'm not going to get into most of it, but I'm going to start with this. Guys, sin is such an awesome concept. <laughs> it's such a beautiful concept. And tell me, well, I'm going to hopefully tell you why. In our, you know, my life anyway, I'll own it. We have such an unhelpfully limited view of sin. It's so limited and it's so poorly used that actually we almost never talk about it in church anymore. Sin, in some of our experiences, is simply used as either a stick to judge people by or a set of rules that now we think don't really need to obey because we have grace and forgiveness. And some of those things are partially true. But the full biblical picture of sin is so much broader and it includes Paul's words here in Romans 8. Sin is also a force and a reality in our world. It is a dominion that the world is suffering under. It is a corruption of good creation. Our world, our creation is enslaved. It groans with pain as it awaits being released from the power of sin. Both Paul and Jesus speak about Jesus being a ransom for our sin. That's one of the metaphors for the cross. And think about that for a minute. A ransom is what you pay to release someone who's under captivity from someone who's overwhelming and stronger than it. So in the Bible, sin is so much bigger and so much more significant than many of us realize. But what's this got to do with the foundation of hope? Because what's so amazing about this view of sin is that it does something to the reality of suffering in our world whether from human choices or not human choices, that no other worldview can do. I kind of think there's probably two main alternatives to handling what's going on around us right now in terms of the suffering and the pain. The first is to embrace the philosophy of what I can only hear politely call stuff happens. Stuff happens is a surrender to sickness and corruption and injustice And it results in either every person for herself or let's just knuckle down and get through this. It's a totally understandable reaction that we all do to this brokenness of the world, but it doesn't have good consequences. The second response could be just to try to detach or reframe what's going on as actually ultimately meaningless. I was talking to a friend um, yesterday about some of my thoughts And he's not a Christian, and as we were discussing it, he was talking about the appeal of Buddhism and its perspective that encourages you to kind of transcend suffering through detachment. It allows you to accept what's going on with peace because it kind of just is what it is. The problem with these two things is that if just stuff happens, then there is no hope. 
Instead, if we try and transcend suffering, then there is no need for hope. But you see, the biblical notion of sin rejects both of these perspectives. It neither denies the pain and suffering of our world, but it does not give up in the face of it. It assures us that this is not how it's meant to be, and this is not how it will be. The biblical notion of sin tells us that the world is broken and captive and that God cares about it so much more than we do. So much so that Jesus came in human form to die for us, to release us and all of creation and provide forgiveness of our own complicity with that brokenness. Not, to not root uh, the reality of sin at the center of our hope is to remove the power of what Jesus achieved in his death on our behalf. And not only us, but as we saw, Paul writes, all of creation is going to be redeemed through this. So sin, as the Bible fully speaks of it, is the reality of Christian hope where a better future can begin. So that's the first one, sin. Uh, the, the, sorry, the hope being founded in the reality of sin. What's our second one? Hope is founded in the reality of the world that we rarely see. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm really addicted to the news just now, um, partly because they're evil and they play with my mind, but partly because I want to know what's happening. I want to make sense of what's going on. I want to try and predict what's happening tomorrow, I mean, let alone next week or next month. I'm desperate for understanding of what's going on. And as I kind of thought about it, I think this is part of the truth why I'm not a very hopeful person, because in some way my experience of hope is crowded out by my need to understand. However, the more I pay more attention to the news, and I'm not saying watching news is obviously bad, and the more I pay attention to the best of other humans' abilities um, to understand what's going on, the less I pay attention to the Bible's claim on reality. Because I realized that one of the second realities on the basis of biblical hope is a clear and consistent claim that there is another part of reality that we do not often see. I'm going to run you through some examples really quickly. In Daniel 10, Daniel 10 is a book in the Old Testament about a prophet called Daniel. He was in a lion's den. You might have heard about that. Daniel has, in Daniel 10, Daniel has a really disturbed prophetic vision of the future. And he starts praying into it. And it says that three weeks later a divine messenger comes along, basically, I'll paraphrase, sorry I'm late, I was caught up in spiritual warfare for three weeks, but I got here as quick as I could. <laughs> and I just wanted to think about that from Daniel's perspective. He's praying about this thing, and nothing is happening for three weeks. And then this mysterious heavenly figure comes along and says, yeah, sorry, I was in a fight, and, you know, spiritual fight. Like, I'm not going to say any more about that. That's just one example of other stuff's going on. Second example, in 2 Kings 6, Kings is a book in the Old Testament about kings, clues in the title. The prophet Elisha is under attack from the Syrian army. They're coming to get him. Um, and one of Elisha's servants starts to panic, and he sees the size of this army coming. And Elisha prays, and the servant's eyes are opened, and he sees a heavenly army surrounding the earthly army that's even bigger and greater. And again, that wasn't there for all to see, but on that occasion, his eyes were opened, the servant's eyes were opened, and he saw a world that he was not there before. You know, and into the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6, which is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus, he encourages the church to stand firm in their faith. 
But in doing so, he doesn't lower the stakes to kind of minimize their threat, but raises the stakes, declaring that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. The common thread in those three examples and teachings is that the other side of this reality is not revealed in times of strength, but in times of hardship and suffering. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Um, Some of you may know it is written by a Christian leader who is exiled in prison to a Christian community who are under persecution. And if you've not read Revelation, go and read it after this morning. Because what is the content of Revelation in this suffering? Is it a step-by-step guide in earthly terms of what God is going to do to help them? No, it's a completely chaotic, crazy, apocalyptic vision of maybe the present, maybe the past, maybe the future. But the point is, it's another reality. That's what was shown to John who wrote it. That's what John wrote to the church to encourage them. Part of God's response to seemingly hopeless situations is not answers, but a revelation that there's a world out there that we do not see, where so much more is going on. Lastly, we find the same truth in the life of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus were not party tricks. They were not marketing stunts to get people to come and listen to what he was selling. They are, in the words of Clive Lewis, a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is writ large across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. I'll say that again. And if you don't know who Clive Lewis is, you probably know him by his other name, C.S. Lewis. But it sounds better when you say C.S. Lewis. He wrote of miracles, they're a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. That story is a reality that God's kingdom and God's reign has always existed. And in Jesus, it broke into the world as a precursor to the full coming of the kingdom. And that's why we can expect to see miracles again today. But let me finish this note just by going back to the sense of mystery. I think this is supposed to be mysterious. Like I said, go read Revelation and revel in how little you understand. I think that's probably what it's there for. Knowing that there is another world, another reality alongside ours is not the same as understanding it. It will not give you certainty. It won't give give me certainty for what's going to happen right now. But it will give us, if we let it, a foundation for our hope. So number three, our hope is founded in the reality of the resurrection. I want to ground this in a little observation. So again, if you have your Bibles open, feel free to turn with me to John 14, verse 27. So this is John's account of Jesus' life and what it meant in terms of the good news. And this happened before Jesus is about to go to the to cross and die, and he's with his disciples, and he says this. He says, my peace I live, leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. And now a few days after that, um, Jesus has clearly made a huge promise right there, sorry, um, that he says he's going to give a peace that the world cannot give and one that will still their hearts and fears and give them hope. That's a big claim. Now fast forward a few days when Jesus is dead in the grave and think about how that would have sounded to his disciples. 
They've just seen their leader and supposed Messiah nailed to a cross and put in the tomb. Where was that peace and that hope right now? Now let's jump forward a few days to John chapter 20, verse 19. And again here, there's more that I can get in than I can get into right now, but they're in, um, they, I think they kind of heard Jesus might have risen from the dead, but they're still scared, locked in a room. Um, and it says this, on the evening of that first day of the week, the first week after Jesus died, the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. They didn't know what was going on. Jesus came and stood among them. The resurrected Jesus came and said, what did he say? Peace be with you. I can't help but link these two passages. That the peace that Jesus promised four days prior was not a casual peace or the kind of peace that he'd given before maybe, um, but it was a peace that work could not give because it was a peace that, hey presto, I just rose from the dead. Because Jesus' resurrection was then and is now the game changer. Um, this is a true story. Any Harry Potter fans in the room? Just the one? Excellent. Um, after three, let's shout what house group we are. One, two, no, I'm kidding. We're not doing that. I'm not that kind of fan, but this is a true story. When the last book came out, by the way, if you've not read Harry Potter, I'm about to ruin the ending, so either stop listening, but you've had 20 years to try. Right at the end, Harry sort of dies, but then goes to a weird place and doesn't die and comes back to life. Anyway, that's a, in a nutshell. Um, and I was at a friend's house and we were discussing this and I said, I really hated the ending, it's stupid, he died and came back to life. And they were Christian friends and they just sort of looked at me and said, you realise what you just said? And I was like, ah, ah. But, you know, sort of jokes aside, actually it's always stuck with me because it really reflected the fact that I do think resurrection is a really stupid idea. Like, it doesn't happen. To me, even though I would have said many times out loud, Jesus rose from the dead, that in me, at the time, I kind of know it's sort of theoretical, but, you know, did, he, did it sort of really, really happen? But actually, for the disciples at the time, there was nothing theoretical about it. It was anything but. As John shows, there's a slightly funny thing about that second verse I read you. Like I said, I think they would have known, they would have heard Jesus had risen from the dead, but they were still fearful. Because they were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Even from the miracles in his life and the Old Testament promises about the Messiah, they were as convinced then as you or I are now that death is the end. That's it. That's how human life is. When they saw Jesus go to trial and go to die and be put in a tomb, that was it. That was the Messiah done. So the risen Jesus, as we're told in the gospel stories, filled them with equal part with fear and joy. It did not make any sense to them. But when they were convinced it had happened, it immediately changed their perspective on the world and who Jesus was. From that moment, nothing was ever going to be the same for them again. And when we forget the unrealistic reality of Jesus' real bodily resurrection, we walk around with a hope that is only half-charged. So if the game has changed with the resurrection, how has it changed? In the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection, the apostles wrote more to help understand what the resurrection meant. Yes, did it happen? What did it mean? And one of the things they write about is it means this. It models God's intention for new creation. All of the resurrection stories, written from eyewitnesses who either saw Jesus or gave up their lives swearing they'd seen him alive, include references to his physicality. 
They could touch his body and his wounds. They saw him eat and cook food with them. Why is that important? Because as Paul teaches in places like 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, that Jesus' resurrection is the down payment on God's intention to recreate the whole physical world. God is not intending on just letting the earth fall apart and us going up to some heavenly realm, but it is to redeem, again, that thing we read in, in Romans 8 at the start, all of creation and all of our bodies. There's a physicality to it. So the resurrection shows both the reality of what God has done, but the reality of the plans that he has to give us a hope that nothing in this world can match. So those are the three foundations that I want to share with you this morning. Again, nothing that I can say I live out, but things that have turned into a blueprint for me to found my hope in these times. Found in the reality of sin, the reality of the world that we do not see, and the reality of the resurrection. So let's come in and close and take a breath. If your head is slightly spinning right now, then counterintuitively, I've done my job well. What I'm offering you here and what I'll go into next week is an invitation to take this moment to go deeper in the foundation of the hope that we hold. As I wrote most of this out, I had to pause thinking, oh goodness me, if this stuff is actually true, it really does change everything. As I've intensified my own study of the biblical narrative, I've realized I've barely understood how much hope the good news of Jesus can bring me. And as I've understood Paul's writing to the church in the New Testament, I've realized how much he understood that the good news of Jesus should completely reformat how I think and see the world around me. So what I've found first and foremost is this. The hope of Jesus does not come from a good attitude that makes the most of the world. It comes from the good news that has completely redefined the world. The hope of Jesus doesn't come from a good attitude that makes the most of the world. It comes from the good news that has completely redefined the world. Next week, I'm going to spend our time looking at four ways that we can respond to these realities that ground us in this hope, ways the Bible talks about as we live our lives as apprentices to Jesus. But let me just leave you with one final thought which preempts what we're going to say next week. One thing I realized looking through all 144 occurrences of the Bible is that there's one place where the word hope almost rarely turns up, and that's from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus doesn't really talk about hope. Why? Because Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our freedom from sin. Jesus is our evidence of things not seen. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I'm going to close with a question to leave you until next week that I've been thinking of for these last six months that Peter wrote, which we started with. Right now, in 2020, in your life, what is the reason for the hope that you hold? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.